BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 20 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 20. What had made the change? Ruther, sit up here close by Mother, and let me talk to you for a little while. Yes, Mother. Oh, yes, Mother. Deborah felt the beloved head pressed close to her shoulder, and two soft arms fall about her neck. Are you very unhappy? Is my little one pining too much for the old days? A closer pressure of the head, a more vehement clasp of the encircling arms, but no words. You have seemed brighter lately. I have heard you sing now and then, as if the joy of youth was not quite absent from your heart. Is that true? Or were you merely trying to cheer your mother? I am afraid I was trying to cheer the judge, came in a low whisper to her ear. When I hear his step in the study, that monotonous tramp, tramp, which we both dread, I feel such an ache here, such a desire to comfort him, that I try the one little means I have to divert him from his thoughts. He must be so lonely without— Ruther, you forget how many years have passed since he had a companion. A man becomes used to loneliness. A judge with heavy cases on his mind must think, and think very closely, you know. Oh, Mama— it's not of his cases our judge is thinking when he walks like that. I know him too well, love him too well, not to feel the trouble in his step. I may be wrong, but all the sympathy and understanding I may not give to Oliver, I devote to his father, and when he walks like that, he seems to drag my heart after him. Mama, Mama, do not blame me. I have just as much affection for you— and I suffer just as keenly when I see you unhappy. And, Mama, are you sure that you are quite happy today? You looked as if something had happened to trouble you. Something more than usual, I mean. They were sitting in the dark, with just the light of the stars shining through the upper panes of the one unshadowed window. Deborah, therefore, had little to fear from her daughter's eyes, only from the sensitiveness of her touch and the quickness of her ear. Alas, in this delicately organized girl, these were both attuned to the nicest discrimination, and before the mother could speak, Ruther had started up, crying, Oh, how your heart beats! Something has happened, darling mother, something which— Hush, Ruther, it is only this. When I came to Shelby, it was with the hope that I might some day smooth the way to your happiness. 
but it was only a wild dream rooster and the hour has come for me to tell you so what joys are left us must come in other ways love unblessed must be put aside resolutely and forever she felt the shudder pass through the slender form which had thrown itself again at her side but when the young girl spoke it was with unexpected bravery and calm i have long ago done that mamma i've had no hopes from the first the look with which oliver accepted my refusal to go on with the ceremony was one of gratitude mother i can never forget that relief struggled with grief would you have me cherish any further illusions after that mrs scoville was silent so after all reuther had not been so blind on that day as she had always feared oliver has faults oh let me talk about him just for once darling mother the poor stricken child babbled on his temper is violent or so he has often told me coming and going like a gust of no mamma don't make me stop if he has faults he has good traits too he was always gentle with me and if that far-away look you did not like would come at times and take him as it were out of our world such a sweet awakening would follow when he realized that i was waiting for his spirit to come back that i never minded the mystery in my joy at the comfort which my love gave him my child my child mother i can soothe the father but i can no longer soothe oliver that is my saddest thought it makes me wish sometimes that he would find another loving heart on which he could lean without any self-reproach i should soon learn to bear it it would so assure his future and rid me of the fear that he may fail to hold the place he has won by such hard work and persistence a moment's silence then a last appeal on the part of the mother reuther have i ever been harsh to you no no then you will not think me unkind or even untender if i say that every loving thought you give now to oliver is hurtful both to yourself and to me don't indulge in them my darling put your heart into work or into music and your mother will bless you won't it help you to know this reuther your mother who has her grace will bless you mother mother that night at a later hour deborah struggled with a great temptation the cap which hung in oliver's closet the knife which lay in the drawer of oliver's desk were to her mind positive proofs of his actual connection with the crime she now wished to see buried for all time in her husband's grave the threat of that unknown inditer of mysterious letters i know a witness had sunk deep into her mind a witness of what of anything which the discovery of these articles might substantiate if so what peril remained in their continued preservation when an effort on her part might so easily destroy them sleep long a stranger to her pillow forsook her entirely as she faced this question and realized the gain in peace which might be hers if cap and knife were gone why then did she allow them to remain the one in the closet the other in the drawer because she could not help herself instinct was against her meddling with these possible proofs of crime 
but this triumph of conscience cost her dear the next morning found her pale almost as pale as reuther was that why the judge surveyed her so intently as she poured out the coffee and seemed more than once on the point of addressing her particularly as she went through the usual routine of tidying up his room she asked herself this question more than once and found it answered every time she hurried by the mirror certainly she showed a remarkable pallor knowing its cause herself she did not invite his inquiries and another day passed with the following morning she felt strong enough to open the conversation which had now become necessary for her peace of mind she waited till the moment when her work all done she was about to leave his presence pausing till she caught his eye which seemed a little loose she thought to look her way she observed with perhaps unnecessary distinctness i hope that everything is to your mind judge ostrander i should be sorry not to make you as comfortable as is possible under the circumstances roused a little suddenly perhaps from thoughts quite disconnected with those of material comfort he nodded with the abstraction of one who recognizes that some sort of acknowledgment is expected from him then seeing her still waiting added politely i am very well looked after if that is what you mean mrs scoville bella could not do any better if he ever did as well i am glad she replied thinking with what humor this would have struck her once i i ask because having nothing on my mind but housekeeping i desire to remedy anything which is not in accordance with your exact wishes his attention was caught and by the very phrase she desired nothing on your mind but housekeeping he repeated i thought you had something else of a very particular nature with which to occupy yourself i had but i have been advised against pursuing it the folly was too great who advised you the words came short and sharp just as they must have come in those old days when he confronted his antagonists at the bar mr black he was my husband's counsel you remember he says that i should only have my trouble for my pains and i have come to agree with him reuther must content herself with the happiness of living under this roof and i with the hope of contributing to your comfort had she impressed him had she played her part with success dare she lift her eye and meet the gaze she felt concentrated upon her no he must speak first she must have some clue to the effect she had produced before she risked his penetration by a direct look she had to wait longer than her beating heart desired he had his own agitation to master and possibly his own doubts this was not the fiery determined woman he had encountered amid the ruins of spencer's folly what had made the change black's discouraging advice hardly why should she take from that hard-faced lawyer which she had not been willing to take from herself there must have been some other influencing cause his look his attitude his voice betrayed his hesitations as he finally remarked black is a man of excellent counsel but he is hard as a stone and not of the sort whose monitions i should expect to have weight with one like you what did he put in the balance or what have others put in the balance to send your passionate intentions flying up to the beam i should be glad to hear them should she tell him 
she had a momentary impulse that way then the irrevocableness of such a move frightened her and pale with dismay at what she felt to be a narrow escape from a grave error of judgment she answered with just enough truth for her to hope that the modicum of falsehood accompanying it would escape his attention what has changed my intentions my experience here judge ostrander with every day i pass under this roof i realize more and more the mistake i made in supposing that any change in circumstances would make a union between our two children proper or feasible headstrong as i am by nature i have still some sense of the fitness of things and it is that sense awakened by a better knowledge of what the ostrander name stands for which has outweighed my hopes and mad intentions i am sorry that i ever troubled you with them the words were ambiguous startlingly so she felt but in hope that they would strike him otherwise she found courage to at last raise her eyes in search of what lay in his nothing or so what she thought at first beyond the glint of a natural interest then her mind changed and she felt that it would take one much better acquainted with his moods than herself to read to its depths a gaze so sombre and inscrutable his answer coming after a moment of decided suspense only deepened this impression it was to this effect madam we have said our say on this subject if you have come to see the matter as i see it i can but congratulate you upon your good sense and express the hope that it will continue to prevail reuther is worthy of the best he stopped abruptly reuther is a girl after my own heart he gently supplemented with a glance toward his papers lying in a bundle at his elbow and she shall not suffer because of this disappointment to her girlish hopes tell her so with my love it was a plain dismissal mrs scoville took it as such and quietly left the room as she did so she was approached by reuther who handed her a letter which had just been delivered it was from mr black and read thus we have found the rogue and have succeeded in inducing him to leave town he's a man in the bill-sticking business and he owns to a grievance against the person we know deborah's sleep that night was without dreams End of chapter 20. What had made the change? Chapter 21 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 21. In the courtroom. About this time, the restless pacing of the judge in his study at nights became more frequent and lasted longer. In vain, Reuther played her most cheerful airs and sang her sweetest songs. The monotonous tramp kept up with a regularity nothing could break. He's worried by the big case now being tried before him, Deborah would say, when Reuther's eyes grew wide and misty in her sympathetic trouble. And there was no improbability in the plea, for it was a case of much moment and of great local interest. A man was on trial for his life, and the circumstances of the case were such that the feeling called forth was unusually bitter so much so indeed that every word uttered by the counsel and every decision made by the judge were discussed from one end of the county to the other and in shelby if nowhere else took precedence of all other topics though it was a presidential year and party sympathies ran high 
The more thoughtful spirits were inclined to believe in the innocence of the prisoner, but the lower elements of the town, moved by class prejudice, were bitterly antagonistic to his cause and loud for his conviction. Did the judge realize his position and the effect made upon the populace by his very evident leaning towards this dissipated but well-connected young man accused of a crime so brutal that he must either have been the sport of the most malicious circumstances or a degenerate of the worst type. The time of Judge Ostrander's office was nearly up, and his future continuance on the bench might very easily depend upon his attitude at the present hearing. Yet he, without apparent recognition of this fact, showed without any hesitancy, or possibly without self-consciousness, the sympathy he felt for the man at the bar, and ruled accordingly almost without variation. No wonder he paced the floor as the proceedings drew towards its close and the inevitable hour approached when a verdict must be rendered. Mrs. Scoville, reading his heart by the light of her recent discoveries, understood as nobody else the workings of his conscience and the passion of sympathy which this unhappy father must have for misguided youth. She began to fear for his health, and count the days till this ordeal was over. In other regards, quiet had come to them all, and less tempestuous fears. Could the judge but weather the possible conviction of this man, and restrain himself from a disclosure of his own suffering? More cheerful days might be in store for them, for no further missiles were to be seen on the lawn, nor had anything occurred for days to recall to Deborah's mind the move she had made towards re-establishing her husband's innocence. A week passed, and the community was all agog in anticipation of the judge's charge in the case just mentioned. It was to be given at noon, and Mrs. Scoville, conscious that he had not slept an hour the night before, having crept down more than once to listen if his step had ceased, approached him as he prepared to leave the house for the courtroom, and anxiously asked if he were quite well. "'Oh, yes, I'm well,' he responded sharply looking about for Ruther. The young girl was standing a little behind him, with his gloves in her hand, a custom she had fallen into in her desire to have his last look and fond good morning. "'Come here, child,' said he, in a way to make her heart beat, and as he took the gloves from her hand, he stooped and kissed her on the forehead, something he had never done before. "'Let me see you smile,' said he. It's a memory I like to take with me into the courtroom. But when, in her pure delight at his caress and the fatherly feeling which gave a tremor to his simple request, she lifted her face with that angelic look of hers which was far sweeter and far more moving than any smile, he turned away abruptly, as though he had been more hurt than comforted, and strode out of the house without another word. Deborah's hand went to her heart, in the dark corner whither she had withdrawn herself, and when she turned again towards the spot where Ruther had stood, it was in some fear lest she had betrayed her understanding of this deeply tried father's passionate pain. But Ruther was no longer there. She had fled quickly away with the memory of what was to make this day a less dreary one for her. Morning passed, and the noon came bringing Deborah an increased uneasiness. When lunch was over, and Ruther sat down to her piano, the feeling had grown into an obsession, 
which soon resolved itself into a definite fear. What if an attack, such as I once saw, should come upon him while he sits upon the bench? Why have I not thought of this before? Oh, God, these evil days! When will they be over? She found herself so restless that she decided upon going out. Donning her quiet gown and veil, she looked in on Ruther and expressed her intention, then slipped out of the front door, hardly knowing whither her feet would carry her. They did not carry her far, not at this moment at least. On the walk outside she met Miss Weeks hurrying towards her from the corner, stumbling in her excitement and so weakened in body or spirit that she caught at the unresponsive fence for the support which its smooth surface refused to give her. At sight of Deborah's figure she paused and threw up her hands. "'Oh, Mrs. Scoville, such a dreadful thing!' she cried. "'Look here!' And opening one of her hands, she showed a few torn scraps of paper whose familiarity made Deborah's blood run cold. "'On the bridge!' gasped the little lady, leaning against the fence for support. "'Pasted on the railing of the bridge! I should never have seen it, nor looked at it, if I had it been that I—' "'Don't tell me here,' urged Deborah. "'Let's go over to your house. See, there are people coming.' The little lady yielded to the other's constraining hand, and together they crossed the street. Once in the house— Deborah allowed her full apprehension to show itself. What were the words? What was on the paper? Anything about— The little woman's look of horror stopped her. It's a lie, an awful, abominable lie. But think of such a lie being pasted up on that dreadful bridge for anyone to see. After twelve years, Mrs. Scoville, after— But here— Indignation changed suddenly into suspicion. And eyeing her visitor with sudden disfavor, she cried, "'This is your work, madam. Your inquiries and your talk of John Scoville's innocence has set wagging all the villainous tongues in town, and I remember something else. How you came smirking into this very room one day with your talk about caps and Oliver Ostrander's doings on the day when Algernon Etheridge was murdered. You were in search of information, I see. Information against the best, the brightest. Well, why don't you speak? I'll give you the chance if you want it. Don't stand looking at me like that. I'm not used to it, Mrs. Scoville. I'm a peaceable woman, and I'm not used to it. Miss Weeks. Ah, the oil of that golden speech on troubled waters. What was its charm? What message did it carry from Deborah's warm, true heart that its influence should be so miraculous? Miss Weeks, you have forgotten my interest in Oliver Ostrander. He was my daughter's lover. He was my own ideal of a gifted, kind-hearted, if somewhat mysterious, young man. No calumny uttered against him can awaken in you half the sorrow and indignation it does in me. Let me see those lines, or what there is left of them, so that I may share your feelings. They must be dreadful. They are more than dreadful. I don't know how I had the strength to pull these pieces off. 
I couldn't have done it if they had been quite dry. But what do you want to see them for? I'd have left them there if I'd been willing to have them seen. They are for the kitchen fire. Wait a moment, and then we will talk. But Deborah had no mind to let these pieces escape her eye. Sick as she felt at heart, she exerted herself to win the little woman's confidence. And when Deborah exerted herself, even under such adverse conditions as these, she seldom failed to succeed. Nor did she fail now. At the end of fifteen minutes, she had the torn bits of paper arranged in their proper position and was reading these words. The Scene of Olive Durr's Crime Nothing could be more explicit, nothing more damaging. As the glances of the two women met, it would be difficult to tell on which face distress hung out the wider flag. The beginning of the end was Deborah's thought. If after Mr. Black's efforts, a charge like this is found posted up in the public ways, the ruin of the Ostranders is determined upon, and nothing we can do can stop it. In five minutes more, she had said goodbye to Miss Weeks and was on her way to the courthouse. This building occupied one end of a large paved square in the busiest part of the town. As Deborah approached it, she was still further alarmed by finding this square full of people standing in groups or walking impatiently up and down with their eyes fixed on the courthouse doors. The case which had agitated the whole country for days was now in the hands of the jury, and a verdict was momentarily expected. So much for appearances outside. Within, there was the uneasy hum, the anxious look, the subdued movement, which marks an universal suspense. Announcement had been made that the jury had reached their verdict, and counsel were resuming their places and the judge his seat. Those who had eyes only for the latter, and these were many, noticed a change in him. He looked older by years than when he delivered his charge. Not the prisoner himself gave greater evidence of the effect which this hour of waiting had had upon a heart whose covered griefs were, consciously or unconsciously, revealing themselves to the public eye. He did not wish this man sentenced. This was shown by his charge, the most one-sided one he had given in all his career. Yet the man awaiting the verdict had small claim to his consideration. None, in fact, save that he was young and well-connected. Facts in his favor, with which the people who packed the courthouse that day had little sympathy, as their cold looks proved. To Deborah, who had succeeded in getting a seat in a remote and inconspicuous corner, these looks conveyed a spirit of so much threat that she gazed about her in wonder that so few saw where the real tragedy in this room lay. But the jury is now seated, and the clatter of moving feet, which but a moment before filled the great room, sinks as if under a charm, and silence, that awesome precursor of doom, lay in all its weight upon every ear and heart, as the clerk, advancing with the cry, Order in the court, put his momentous question. 
Gentlemen of the jury, are you ready with your verdict? A hush. Then the clear voice of the foreman. We are. How do you find? Guilty or not guilty? Another hesitation. Did the foreman feel the threat lurking in the air about him? If so, he failed to show it in his tones as he uttered the words which released the prisoner. Not guilty. A growl from the crowd, almost like that of a beast stirring its lair, then a quick cessation of all hubbub as everyone turned to the judge to whose one-sided charge they attributed this release. Again, he was a changed man. With the delivery of this verdict, he had regained his natural poise, and never had he looked more authoritative or more preeminently the dominating spirit of the court than in the few following moments in which he expressed the thanks of the court to the jury and dismissed the prisoner. And yet, though each person there, from the disappointed prosecutor to the least aggressive spectator, appeared to feel the influence of a presence and voice difficult to duplicate on the bench of this country, Deborah experienced in her quiet corner no alleviation of the fear which had brought her into this forbidding spot and held her breathless through all these formalities, for the end was not yet. And yet, through all the turmoil of noisy departure and the drifting out into the square of a vast dissatisfied throng, she had caught the flash of a bit of paper. How introduced into this moving mass of people, no one ever knew, passing from hand to hand towards the solitary figure of the judge, who had not as yet left his seat. She knew no one better what this meant. An instinct bade her cry out and bid those thoughtless hands to cease their work and let this letter drop. But her discretion still held, and subduing the mad impulse, she watched with dilating eyes and heaving breast the slow passage of this fatal note through the now rapidly thinning crowd, its delay as it reached the open space between the last row of seats and the judge's bench and its final delivery by some officious hand, who thrust it upon his notice just as he was rising to leave. The picture he made in that instant of hesitation never left her mind. To the end of her days she will carry a vision of his tall form, imposing in his judicial robes, and with the majesty of his office still upon him, fingering this envelope in sight of such persons as still lingered in his part of the room. Nemesis was lowering its black wings over his devoted head, and with feelings which left her dazed and transfixed in silent terror, Deborah saw his finger tear its way through the envelope and his eyes fall frowningly on the paper he drew out. Then the people's counsel, and the counsel for the defense, and such clerks and hangers-on as still lingered in the upper end of the room, experienced a decided sensation. The judge, who a moment before had towered above them all in melancholy but impressive dignity, shrunk with one gasp into feebleness and sank back stricken, if not unconscious, into his chair. Was it a stroke, or just one of his attacks, of which all had heard? Was he aware of his own condition, and the disturbance it caused, or was he, on the contrary, dead to his own misery, and oblivious of the rush which was made from all sides to his assistance? Even Deborah could not tell, and was forced to sit quiet in her corner, 
waiting for the parting of the group which hid the judge from her sight. It happened suddenly, and showed her the same figure she had seen once before, a man with faculty suspended, but not impaired, facing them all with open gaze, but absolutely dead for the moment to his own condition and to the world about. But horrible as this was, what she saw going on behind him was infinitely worse. A man had caught up the bit of paper Judge Ostrander had let fall from his hand, and was opening his lips to read it to the curious people surrounding him. She tried to stop him. She forced a cry to her lips, which should have rung through the room, but which died away on the air unheard. The terror which had paralyzed her limbs had choked her voice. But her ears remained true. Low as he spoke, no trumpet call could have made his meaning clearer to Deborah Scoville than did these words. We know why you favor criminals. Twelve years is a long time, but not long enough to make wise men forget. End of chapter 21 In the Courtroom Chapter 22 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 22. Before the Gates. Had she not caught the words themselves, she would have recognized their import from the blighting effect they produced upon the persons grouped within hearing. Schooled as most of them were to face with minds secure and tempers quite unruffled the countless surprises of a courtroom, they paled at the insinuation conveyed in these two sentences and with scarcely the interchange of glance or word, drew aside in a silence, which no man seemed inclined to break. As for the people still huddled in the doorway, they rushed away helter-skelter into the street, there to proclaim the judge's condition and its probable cause, an event which to many quite eclipsed in the interest the more ordinary one, which had just released her freedom a man seemingly doomed. Few persons were now left in the great room, and Deborah, embarrassed to find that she was the only woman present, was on the point of escaping from her corner when she perceived a movement take place in the rigid form from which she had not yet withdrawn her eyes, and regarding Judge Ostrander more attentively, she caught the gleam of his suspicious eye as it glanced this way and that, to see if his lapse of consciousness had been noticed by those about him. Would the man still in possession of the paper whose contents had brought about this attack understand these evidences of apprehension? Yes. And what is more, he seems to take such means as offers to hide from the judge all knowledge of the fact that any other eyes than his own have read these invidious words. With unexpected address, he waits for the judge to turn his head aside when with a quick and dexterous movement he so launches the paper from his hand that it falls softly and without flurry within an inch of the judicial seat. Then he goes back to his papers. This suggestion, at once so marked and so delicate, did not fail of its effect upon those about. Wherever the judge looked, he saw abstracted faces and busy hands, and taking heart at not finding himself watched, he started to rise. The memory came, blasting, overwhelming memory of the letter he had been reading, and rousing with a start, he looked down at his hand. 
than at the floor before him, and seen the letter lying there, picked it up with a secret, sidelong glance to right and left, which sank deep into the heart of the still watchful Deborah. If those about him saw, they made no motion. Not an eye looked round, and not a head turned as he straightened himself and proceeded to leave the room. Only Deborah noted how his steps faltered, and how little he was to be trusted to find his way unguided to the door. It lay to the right, and he was going left. Now he stumbles. Isn't there anyone to— Yes, she is not the sole one on watch. The same man who had read aloud the note, and then dropped it within his reach, had stepped after him, and kindly, if artfully, turned him towards the proper place of exit. As the two disappear, Deborah wakes from her trance, and finding herself alone among the seats, hurries to quit her corner and leave the building. The glare, the noise of the square, as she dashes down into it, seemed for the moment unendurable. The pushing, panting mass of men and women, of which she has not become a part, closes about her, and for the moment she can see nothing but faces, faces with working mouths and blazing eyes, a medley of antagonistic expression, all directed against herself, or so she felt in the heat of her self-consciousness. But after the first recoil, she knew that no such universal recognition could be hers, that she was merely a new and inconsiderable atom caught in a wave of feeling which engulfed all it met, that this mob was not raised from the stones to overwhelm her but him, and that if she flew, it should be to his aid, and not to save herself. But how was she to reach him? He would not come up by the main entrance, that she knew. Where look for him, then? Suddenly she remembered, and using some of her strength, of which she had good measure, and more of that address to which I have already alluded, she began to worm herself along through this astounding collection of people, much too large already for the ordinary force of police to handle, to that corner of the building where a small door opened upon a rear street. She remembered it from those old days, when she had once entered this courthouse as a witness. But alas, others knew it also, and thick as the crowd was in front, it was even thicker here, and far more tumultuous. Word had gone about that the father of Oliver Ostrander had been given his lesson at last, and the curiosity of the populace had risen to a fever heat in their anxiety to see how the proud Ostrander would bear himself in his precipitate downfall. They had crowded there to see, and they would see. Were he to shrink the ordeal? Were he to wait for the square to be cleared? But they knew him too well to fear this. He will come. Nay, he is coming now, and coming alone. No other figure looms so grandly in a doorway, nor is there any other face in Shelby whose pallor could strike so coldly to the heart or rouse such conflicting emotions. He was evidently not prepared to see his path quite so heavily marked out for him by the gaping throng, but after one look, he assumed some show of his old commanding presence, and advanced bravely down the steps, eyeing some, and silencing all, until he had reached his carriage step and the protection of the officers on guard. Then a hoot rose from some far-off quarter of the square, 
and he turned short about, and the people saw his face. Despair had seized it, and if anyone there desired vengeance, he had it. The knell of active life had been rung for this man. He would never remount the courthouse steps or face again a respectful jury. As for Deborah, she had shrunk out of sight at his approach, but as soon as he had ridden off, she looked eagerly for a taxicab to carry her in his wake. She could not let him ride that mile alone. She was still fearful for him, though the mass of people about her was rapidly dissolving away, and the streets growing clear. But an apprehension still greater, because more personal, seized her when she found herself behind him on the long road. Several minutes had been lost in obtaining a taxicab, and she feared that she would be unable to overtake him before he reached his own gates. This would be to subject Ruther to a shock which the poor child had little strength to meet. She could not escape the truth long. Soon, very soon, she would have to be told that the man who stood so high in her esteem was now regarded as a common criminal. But she must be prepared for the awful news. She must be within reach of her mother's arms when the blow fell, destroying her past as well as her future. Were minutes really so long? The house really so far away? Deborah gazes eagerly forward. There is very little traffic in the streets today, and the road ahead looks clear. Too clear. She cannot even see the dust raised by the judge's rapidly disappearing carriage. Can he have arrived home already? No, or the carriage will be coming back, and not a vehicle is in view. Her anxiety increases. She has reached the road, debouching towards the bridge, has crossed it, is drawing nearer, nearer, when, what is this? Men, women, coming from the right, coming from the left, running out of houses, flocking from every side street, filling up the road. A lesser mob than that from which she had just escaped, but still, a mob, and all making for one point, the judge's house. And he? She can see his carriage now. Held up for a moment by the crowd, it has broken through and is rolling quickly towards Ostrander Lane. But the mob is following, and she is yet far behind. Shouting to the chauffeur to hasten, the insistent honk-honk of the cab adds its raucous note to the turmoil. They have dashed through one group. They are dashing through another. Not can withstand an onrushing automobile. She catches glimpses of raised arms threatening retaliation, of eager, stolid, uncertain, and furious faces, and her breath held back during that one instant of wild passage rushes pantingly forth again. Ostrander Lane is within sight. If only they can reach it. If only they can cross it. But they cannot, without sowing death in their track. No scattered groups here. The mob fills the corner. It is packed close as a wall. Brought up against it, the motor necessarily comes to a standstill. Balked? No, not yet. Opening the door, Deborah leaps to the ground and in one instant finds herself but a moat in the seas of humanity. In vain her efforts, she cannot move arm or limb. The gate is but a few paces off, but all hope of reaching it is futile. She can only hold herself still and listen as all around are listening. But to what? To nothing. It is expectation which holds them all silent. 
she will have to wait until the crowd sways apart, allowing her to, ah, there, some heads are moving now. She catches one glimpse ahead of her and sees, what does she see? The noble but shrunk figure of the judge drawn up before his gate. His lips are moving, but no sound issues from them. And while those about are waiting for his words, they peer with an insolence barely dashed by awe at his white head and his high fence, and now at the gate swerving gently inward under the hand of someone whose figure is invisible. But no words coming. A change passes like a stroke of lightning over the surging mass. Someone shouts out, Coward! Another, Traitor! And the lifted head falls. The moving lips cease from their efforts, and in place of the great personality which filled their eyes a moment before, they see a man entrapped, waking to the horror of a sudden death in life, for which no visions of the day, no dreams of the night, had been able to prepare him. It was a sight to waken pity, not derision. But these people had gathered here in a bitter mood, and their rancor had but scented the prey. Calls of Oliver, and such threats as, You saved him at a poor man's expense, but we'll have him yet, we'll have him yet, began to rise about him, followed by endless repetitions of the name from near and far. Oliver! 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 His own lips seemed to re-echo the word. Then like a lion baited beyond his patience, the judge lifted his head and faced them all with a fiery intensity which for the moment made him a terrible figure to contemplate. Let no one utter that name to me here, shot from his lips in tones of unspeakable menace and power. Spare me that name, or the curse of my ruined life be upon you. I can bear no more today. Thrilled by his aspect, cowering under his denunciation, emphasized as it was by a terrifying gesture, the people, pressing closest about him, drew back and left the passage open to the gate. He took it with a bound and would have entered but that from the outskirts of the crowd where his voice had not reached. The cry rose again of, Oliver, Oliver, the sons of the rich go free, but ours have to hang, at which he turned his head about, gave them one stare, and fell back against the door. It yielded, and a woman's arms received him. The gentle Ruther, in that hour of dire extremity, showed herself stronger than her mother, who had fallen in a faint amid the crowd. End of chapter 22 Before the Gates Chapter 23 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 23. The Misfortunes of My House. To one who swoons but seldom, the moment of returning consciousness is often fraught with great pain and sometimes with unimaginable horror. It was such to Deborah, the pain and horror holding her till her eyes, accustomed to realities again, saw in the angel face which floated before her vision, amid a swarm of demon masks, the sweet and solicitous countenance of Ruther. As she took this in, she took in other facts also, that there were no demons, no strangers even about her, that she and her child were comparatively alone in their own little parlor, and that Ruther's sweet face wore a look of lofty courage, 
which reminded her of something she could not at the moment grasp, but which was so beautiful. At that instant her full memory came, and uttering a low cry she started up, and struggling to her feet, confronted her child, this time with a look full of agonized inquiry. Luther seemed to understand her, for taking her mother's hand in hers, she softly said, I knew you were not seriously ill, only frightened by the crowd and their senseless shoutings. Don't think of it any more, dear mother. The people are dispersing now, and you will soon be quite restored and ready to smile with us at an attack so groundless it is a little short of absurd. Astounded at such tranquility, where she had expected anguish, if not stark unreason, doubting her eyes, her ears, for this was no longer her delicate suffering Ruther to be shielded from all unhappy knowledge, but a woman as strong if not as wise to the situation as herself. She scrutinized the child closely, then turned her gaze slowly about the room, and started in painful surprise as she perceived standing in the space behind her the tall figure of Judge Ostrander. He! And she must face him! The man whom she had by her blind and untimely efforts to regain happiness for Ruther had brought to this woeful pass. The ordeal was too bitter for her broken spirit, and shrinking aside, she covered her face with her hands like one who stands detected in a guilty act. Pardon, she entreated, forgetting Ruther's presence in her consciousness of the misery she had brought upon her benefactor. I never meant, I never dreamed. Oh, no apologies. Was this the judge speaking? The tone was an admonitory, not a suffering one. It was not even that of a man humiliated or distressed. You have had an unfortunate experience, but that is over now, and so must your distress be. Then, as in her astonishment she dropped her hands and looked up, he added very quietly, Your daughter has been much disturbed about you, but not at all about Oliver or his good name. She knows my son too well, and so do you and I, to be long affected by the virulent outcries of a mob seeking for an object upon which to expend their spleen. Swaying yet in body and mind, quite unable in the turmoil of her spirits to reconcile the strong and steady man with the crushed and despairing figure she had so lately beheld, shrinking under the insults of the crowd. Deborah was glad to sit silent under this open rebuke, and listen to Ruther's ingenuous declarations, though she knew that they had brought no conviction, and distilled no real comfort either to his mind or hers. "'Yes, mother darling,' the young girl was saying, these people have not seen Oliver in years, but we have, and nothing they can say, nothing that anyone can say but himself, could ever shake my belief in him as a man incapable of a really wicked act. He might be capable of striking a sudden blow. Most men are under great provocation, but to conceal such a fact, to live for years enjoying the respect of all who knew him, with the knowledge festering in his heart of another having suffered for his crime, that— that would be impossible to Oliver Ostrander. Some words ring in the heart long after their echo has left the ear. Impossible. Deborah stole a look at the judge, but he was gazing at Ruther, where he well might gaze if his sinking heart craved support, or his abashed mind sought to lose itself in the enthusiasm of this pure soul with its loving, uncalculating instincts. Am I not right, mother? Ah. Uh, must she answer that? Tell the judge, 
who is as confident of Oliver as I am myself, that you are confident too, that you could no more believe him capable of this abominable act than you could believe it of my father. I will tell the judge, stammered the unhappy mother. Judge, she briefly declared, as she rose with the help of her daughter's arm, my mind agrees with yours in this matter. What you think, I think, and that was all she could say. As she fell again into her seat, the judge turned to Ruther. Leave your mother for a little while, he urged with that rare gentleness he always showed her. Let her rest here a few minutes longer, alone with me. Yes, Ruther, rumored Deborah, seeing no way of avoiding this inevitable interview. I am feeling better every minute. I will come soon. The young girl's eye faltered from one to the other, then settled with a strange and imploring look upon her mother. Had her clear intelligence pierced at last to the core of that mother's misery? Had she seen what Deborah would have spared her at the cost of her own life? It would seem so, for when the mother, with great effort, began some conciliatory speech, the young girl smiled with a certain sad patience, and turning towards Judge Ostrander, said as she softly withdrew, "'You have been very kind to allow me to mention a name and discuss a subject you have expressly forbidden. I want to show my gratitude, Judge Ostrander, by never referring to it again without your permission, that you know my mind.' Here her head rose with a sort of lofty pride, which lent a dazzling quality to her usually quiet beauty, and that I know yours is quite enough for me.' A noble girl, a mate for the best, fell from the judge's lips, after a silence disturbed only by the faint, far-off murmur of a slowly dispersing throng. Deborah made no answer. She could not yet trust her courage or her voice. The judge, who was standing near, concentrated his look upon her features. Still, she made no effort to meet his eye. He did not speak, and the silence grew appalling. To break it, he stepped away and took a glance out of the window. There was nothing to be seen there. The fence hid all, but he continued to look, the shadows from his soul settling deeper and deeper upon his countenance as each heavy moment dragged by. When he finally turned, it was with a powerful effort which communicated itself to her and forced her long-bowed head to rise in her troubled mind to disclose itself. "'You wish to express your displeasure and hesitate on account of Ruther,' she faltered. "'You need not. We are quite prepared to leave your house if our presence reminds you too much of the calamity I have brought upon you by my inconsiderate revival of a past you had every reason to believe buried.' His reply was uttered with great courtesy. "'Madam,' said he, "'I have never had a thought from the first moment of your coming.' of any change in the arrangements we then entered into, nor is a demonstration we have just witnessed a calamity of sufficient importance to again divide this household. To connect my high-minded son with a crime for which he had no motive, and from which he could reap no benefit, is, if you will pardon my plain speaking at a moment so critical, even greater folly than to exculpate, after all these years, the man whom a conscientious jury found guilty." Only a mob could so indulge itself. Individuals will not dare. She thought of the letter which had been passed up to him in court, and surveyed him with an astonishment she made no effort to conceal. 
Never had she felt at a greater disadvantage with him. Never had she understood him less. Was this attempt at unconcern, so pitiably transparent to her, made in an endeavor to probe her mind or to deceive his own? In her anxiety to determine, she hesitatingly remarked, "'Not the man who writes those anonymous letters?' "'Letters?' Involuntarily, his hand flew to one of his inner pockets. "'Yes, you have found them, have you not, lying about the grounds?' "'No!' he looked startled. "'Explain yourself,' said he. "'What letters? Not such as—' Again his hand went to his pocket, but shrunk hastily back as she pulled out a crumpled bit of paper and began to smooth it out for his perusal. "'What have you there?' he cried. "'Such a letter as I speak of, Judge Ostrander. I picked it up from the walk a day or so ago. Perhaps you have come upon the like?' "'No. Why should I?' He had started back, but his eye followed involuntarily upon the words she had spread out before him. He rapidly read them, and, aghast at their import, glanced from the paper to her face, and back again, crying, "'He means Oliver!' "'We have an enemy, Mrs. Scoville, an enemy. "'Do you know?' "'Here he leaned forward and plunged his eye, "'now burning with many passions, into hers. "'Who this enemy is?' "'Yes.' "'Softly as the word came, it seemed to infuriate him. "'Seizing her by the arm, "'he was about to launch against her "'the whole weight of his aroused nature, "'when she said simply, "'He is a common bill-poster. "'I took pains to find this out.' I was as interested as you could be to discover the author of such an outrage. A bill-poster? Yes, Judge Ostrander. What is his name? I do not know. I only know that he has resolved upon making you trouble. It was he who incited this riot. He did it by circulating anonymous missives and by—forgive me for telling you this—affixing scrawls of the same ambiguous character on fences and on walls and even on—on—here terror tied her tongue— for his hand had closed about her arm in a forceful grip, and the fire in the eye holding hers was a consuming one. The rails of, of bridges! Ah! The cry was involuntary, but not so the steady settling of the lips which followed it, and the determined poise of his body as he waited for her next word. Miss Weeks, the little lady opposite, saw the latter and tore it off, but the mischief had already spread. Oh, "'Strike me! Send me from your house!' He gave no token of hearing her. "'Why is this man my enemy?' he asked. "'I do not know any such person as you describe.' "'Nor I,' she answered more quietly. "'A bill-poster. Well, he has done his worst. I shall think no more about him.' And the burning eye grew mild, and the working lip calm again, with a determination too devoid of sarcasm to be false." It was a change for which Deborah was in no wise prepared. She showed her amazement as ingenuously as a child, and he, observing it, remarked in a different tone from any he had used yet, "'You do not look well. You are still suffering from the distress and confusion into which this wretched swoon has thrown you. Or can it be that you are not yet convinced of our wisdom in ignoring this diabolic attack?' "'upon one whose reputation is as dear to us as our own? "'If that is so, and I see that it is, "'let me remind you of a fact which cannot be new to you, "'if it is to others of happier memories. 
that no accusation of this kind, however plausible, and this is not plausible, can hold its own for a day without evidence to back it. And there is no evidence against my son in this ancient matter of my friend Etheridge's violent death, save the one coincidence known to many, that he chanced to be somewhere in the ravine at that accursed hour, a petty point upon which to hang this late and elaborate insult of suspicion. And his voice rang out in a laugh, but not as it would have rung, or as never thought it would have rung, had his mind been as free as his words. When it had quite ceased, Deborah threw off the last remnant of physical as well as moral weakness, and deliberately rose to her feet. She believed she understood him now, and she respected the effort he was making, and would have seconded it gladly had she dared, but she did not dare. If he were really as ignorant as he appeared of the extent of the peril threatening Oliver's good name, if he had cheated himself during these long years into supposing that the secret which had undermined his own happiness was an unshared one, and that his own conduct since that hour he had characterized as accursed, had given no point to the charges they had just heard hurled against his son, then he ought to be undeceived, and that right speedily. Evidence did exist connecting Oliver with this crime. Evidence as sure, nay yet surer, than that raised against her husband and no man's laughter, no, not even his father's, least of all his father's, could cover up or avail against the revelations which must follow, now that the scent was on. Honoring as she did the man before her, understanding both his misery and the courage he displayed in the superhuman effort to hide his own convictions, she gathered up all her resources, and with a resolution no less brave than his, said firmly, you are too much respected in this town, Judge Ostrander, for any collection of people, however thoughtless or vile, to so follow the lead of a low-down miscreant as to greet you to your face with these damaging assertions, unless they thought they had evidence, and good evidence, too, with which to back these assertions. It was the hurling of an arrow poisoned at the point, the launching of a bomb into the very citadel of his security. Had he burst into outbreak, gripped her again, or fiercely shown her the door, she would not have been astonished. Indeed, she was prepared for some such result. But it did not come. On the contrary, his answer was almost mild, though tinged for the first time with a touch of that biting sarcasm for which he had once been famous. If they had not thought, he repeated, if you had said if they had not known— that I might indeed have smelt danger. People think strange things. Perhaps you think them too. I? The moment was critical. She saw now that he was sounding her, had been sounding her from the first. Should she let everything go and let him know her mind, or should she continue to conceal it? In either course lay danger, if not to herself and Ruther, then to himself and Oliver. She decided for the truth. Subterfuge had had its day. The menace of the future called for the strongest weapons which lie at the hand of man. She therefore answered, Yes, I have been thinking, and this is the result. You must either explain publicly and quite satisfactorily to the people of this town the mystery of your long separation from Oliver and the life you have since led in this trebly barred house. Or, 
except the opprobrium of such accusations as we have listened to today. There is no middle course, Judge Ostrander. I, who have loved Oliver almost like a son, who have a daughter who not only loves him but regards him as a perfect model of noble manhood, tell you so, though it breaks my heart to do it. I cannot see you both fall headlong to destruction for lack of understanding the nearness or the depth of the precipice you are approaching. So, the ejaculation came after a moment of intense silence, a silence during which she seemed to discern the sturdiness of years drop slowly away from him. So that is the explanation which people give to my desire for a retirement and a life of contemplation. Well, he slowly added, with the halting utterance of one to whom each word is an effort. I can see some justification for their conclusions now. I have been too self-centered and too short-sighted to recognize my own folly. I might have known that anything out of the common course rouses a curiosity which supplies its own explanation at any cost to propriety or respect. I have courted my own doom. I am the victim of my own mistake. But, he continued, with the flash of his old fire which made him a dignified figure again, I am not going to cringe because I have lost ground in the first skirmish. I come of fighting blood. Oliver's reputation shall not suffer long. Whatever I may have done in my parental confidence to endanger it, I have not spent ten years at the bar and fifteen on the bench for nothing. Let the people look to it. I will stand by my own. He had as completely forgotten her as if she had never existed. John Scoville, his widow, even the child bowed under troubles not unlike his own had faded alike from his consciousness. But the generous Deborah felt no resentment at the determination which would only press her and hers deeply into contumely. She had seen the father and the man for the first time, and her whole heart went out in passionate sympathy which blinded her to everything but her present duty. Alas, that it should be so hard a one! Alas, that instead of encouraging him, she must point out the one weakness of his cause which he did not, or would not see. That is, his own conviction of his absent son's guilt as typified by the line he had deliberately smeared across Oliver's pictured countenance. The task seemed so difficult, the first step so blind, that she did not know how to begin, and stood staring at him with interest and dread struggling for mastery in her heavily laboring breast. Did he perceive this, or was it the silence which drew his attention to her condition and the evils still threatening him. Whichever it was, the light vanished from his face as he surveyed her, and it was with a return of his old manner that he finally observed, You are keeping something from me, some fancy discovery, some clue, as they call it, to what you may consider my dear boy's guilt. With a deep breath, she woke from her trance of indecision, and letting forth the full passion of her nature, she cried out in her anguish, I have but one answer for that, Judge Ostrander. Look into your own heart. Question your own conscience. I have seen what it reveals. I... She stopped appalled. Rage, such as she had never even divined, spoke from every feature. He was no longer the wretched but calmly reasoning man, but a creature hardly human. And when he spoke, 
it was in a frenzy which swept everything before it. You have seen, he shouted, you have broken your promise. You have touched what you were forbidden to touch. You have not so, she broke in softly but very firmly. I have touched nothing that I was told not to, nor have I broken any promise. I simply saw more than I was expected to, I suppose, of the picture which fell the day you first allowed me to enter your study. Is that true? It is true. They were whispering now. Drawing a deep breath, he gathered up his faculties. Upon such accidents, he muttered, hang the fate and honor of men. And you have gossiped about this picture, he again vociferated with sudden and unrestrained violence, told Ruther, told others. No, the denial was peremptory, not to be disbelieved. What I have learned I have kept religiously to myself. Alas, she half moaned, half cried, that I should feel the necessity. Madam, he was searching her eyes, searching her very soul, as men seldom search the mind of another. You believe in the truth of these calumnies that have just been shouted in our ears? You believe what they say of Oliver. You, with every prejudice in his favor, with every desire to recognize his worth. You, who have shown yourself ready to drop your husband's cause, though you considered an honest one, when you saw what havoc it would entail to my boy's repute. You believe, and on what evidence, he broke in, because of the picture? Yes. And the coincidence of his presence in the ravine? Yes. These are puerile reasons. He was speaking peremptorily now, and with all the weight of a master mind. And you are not the woman to be satisfied with anything puerile. There is something back of all this, something you have not imparted. What is that something? Tell, tell. Oliver was a mere boy in those days, and a very passionate one. He hated Etheridge the obtrusive mentor who came between him and yourself. Hated? Yes. Hated? Yes, there is proof. Of his hate? Yes, Judge. He did not ask where. Possibly he knew. And because he did not ask, she did not tell him. Holding on to her secret in a vague hope that so much at least might never see light. I knew the boy shrank sometimes from Algernon's company, the Judge admitted, after another glance at her face. But that means nothing in a boy full of his own affairs. What else have you against him? Speak up. I can bear it all. He handled the stick that... that... Oliver? Yes. Never. Now you have gone mad, madam. I would be willing to end my days in an asylum if that would disprove this fact. But, madam, what proof? What reason can you have for an assertion so monstrous? You remember the shadow I saw, which was not that of John Scoville? The person who made that shadow was whittling a stick. That was a trick of Oliver's. I have heard that he even whittled furniture. Good God! The judge's panoply was pierced at last. They tried to prove, as you will remember, that it was John, who thus disfigured the bludgeon he always carried with pride, but the argument was a sorry one and in itself would have broken down the prosecution had he been a man of better repute. Now, those few chips taken from the handle of this weapon will carry a different significance, for in my folly 
I asked to see the stick which still exists at police headquarters, and there in the wood I detected and pointed out a trifle of steel which never came from the unbroken blades of the knife taken from John's pocket. Fallen was the proud head now, and fallen the great man's aspect. If he spoke, it was to utter a low, Oliver, Oliver, the pathos of it, the heart-rendering wonder in the tone brought the tears to Deborah's eyes and made her last words very difficult. But the one great thing which gives to these facts their really dangerous point is the mystery you have made of your life and of this so-called hermitage. If you can clear that up, you can afford to ignore the rest. The misfortunes of my house, was his sole response. The misfortunes of my house. End of chapter 23 the misfortunes of my house. Chapter 24 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 24 One Secret Less. Suddenly he faced Deborah again. The crisis of feeling had passed, and he looked almost cold. "'You have had advisers, said he. "'Who are they?' "'I have talked with Mr. Black.' "'The judge's brows met. "'Well, you were wise,' said he. "'Then shortly, what is his attitude?' "'Feeling that her position was fast becoming intolerable, "'she falteringly replied, "'Friendly to you and Oliver, "'but even without all the reasons which move me, "'sharing my convictions.' "'He has told you so?' "'Not directly.' But there was no misjudging his opinion of the necessity you were under to explain the mysteries of your life. And it was yesterday we talked, not today. Like words thrown into a void, these slow, lingering, half-uttered phrases seemed to awaken an echo which rung not only in his inmost being, but in hers. Not till in both natures silence had settled again, the silence of despair, not peace, did he speak. When he did, it was simply to breathe her name. Deborah. Startled, for it had always before been Madame. She looked up to find him standing very near her, and with his hand held out. I am going through deep waters, said he. Am I to have your support? Oh, Judge Ostrander, how can you doubt it? she cried, dropping her hand into his and her eyes swimming with tears. But what can I do? If I remain here, I will be questioned. If I fly, but possibly that is what you want, for me to go, to disappear, to take Ruther and sink out of all men's sight forever. If this is your wish, I am ready to do it. Gladly will we be gone now, at once, this very night, if you say so. His disclaimer was peremptory. No, not that. I ask no such sacrifice. Neither would it avail. There is but one thing which can reinstate Oliver and myself in the confidence and regard of these people. Can you not guess it, madam? I mean your own restored conviction that the sentence passed upon John Scoville was a just one. Once satisfied of this, your temperament is such that you would be our advocate whether you wished it or no. Your very silence would be eloquent. "'Convince me. I am willing to have you, Judge Ostrander. 
But how can you do so? A shadow stands between my wishes and the belief you mention. The shadow cast by Oliver as he made his way towards the bridge, with my husband's bludgeon in his hand. Did you see him strike the blow? Were there any opportune shadows to betray what happened between the instant of, let us say, Oliver's approach and the fall of my friend? Much can happen in a minute, and this matter is one of minutes. Granted that the shadow you saw was that of Oliver, and the stick he carried was the one under which Algernon succumbed, what is to hinder the following from having occurred? The stick which Oliver may have caught up in an absent frame of mind becomes burdensome. He has broken his knife against a knot in the handle, and he is provoked. Flinging the bludgeon down, he scurries up the embankment and so on into town. John Scoville, lurking in the bushes, sees his stick fall and regains it at or near the time Algernon Etheridge steps into sight at the end of the bridge beyond Dark Hollow. Etheridge carries a watch greatly desired by the man who finds himself thus armed. The place is quiet. The impulse to possess himself of this watch is sudden and irresistible, and the stick falls on Etheridge's head. Is there anything impossible or even improbable about all this? Scoville had a heart open to crime, Oliver not. This I knew when I sat upon the bench at his trial. And now you shall know it too. Come, I have something to show you. He turned towards the door, and mechanically she followed. Her thoughts were all in a whirl. She did not know what to make of him or of herself. The rooted dread of weeks was stirring in its soil. This suggestion of the transference of the stick from hand to hand was not impossible. Only Scoville had sworn to her, and that too upon their child's head, that he had not struck this blow. And she had believed him after finding the cap and she believed him now. Yes, against her will she believed him now. Why, and again, why? They had crossed the hall, and he was taking the turn to his room. Enter, said he, lifting the curtain. Involuntarily she recoiled, not from him, but from the revelation she felt to be awaiting her in this place of unguessed mystery. Looking back into the space behind her, she caught a fleeting glimpse of Ruther, hovering on a distant threshold. Leaving the judge without even a murmured word of apology, she ran to her child, embraced her, and promised to join her soon, and then, satisfied with the comfort thus gained, she returned quickly to where the judge still awaited her, with his hand on the curtain. "'Forgive me,' said she, and meeting with no reply, stood trembling while he unlocked the door and ushered her in." A new leaf in the history of this old crime was about to be turned. Once within the room, he became his courteous self once more. Be seated, he begged, indicating a chair in the half-gloom. As she took it, the room sprang into sudden light. He had pulled the string which regulated the curtains over the glazed panes in the ceiling. Then as quickly all was gloom again. He had let the string escape from his hand. Half-light is better he muttered in a vague apology. It was a weird beginning to an interview whose object was as yet incomprehensible to her. One minute a blinding glimpse of the room whose details were so varied that many of them still remained unknown to her. The next, everything swept again into shadow 
through which the tall form of the genius of the place loomed with melancholy suggestion. She was relieved when he spoke. Mrs. Scoville, not Deborah now, have you any confidence in Oliver's word? She did not reply at once. Too much depended upon a simple yes or no. Her first instinctive cry would have been yes, but if Oliver had been guilty and yet held back his dreadful secret all these years, how could she believe his word when his whole life had been a lie? Has there ever been anything in this conversation as you knew it in Detroit to make you hesitate to reply? The judge persisted as she continued speechless. No, nothing. I had every confidence in his assertions. I should have yet, if it were not for this horror. Forget it for a moment. Recall his effect upon you as a man, a prospective son-in-law, for you meant him to marry Ruther. I trusted him. I would trust him in many ways yet. Would you trust him enough to believe that he would tell you the truth if you asked him point-blank, whether his hands were clean of crime? Yes. The word came in a whisper, but there was no wavering in it. She had felt the conviction dart like an arrow through her mind that Oliver might slay a man in his hate, might even conceal his guilt for years, but that he could not lie about it when brought face to face with an accuser like herself. Then I will let you read something he wrote at my request these many years ago. An experience, the tale of one awful night, the horrors of which, locked within his mind and mine, have never been revealed to a third person. That you should share our secret now is not only necessary, but fitting. It becomes the widow of John Scoville to know what sort of a man she persists in regarding innocent. Wait here for me. With a quick step, he wound his way among the various encumbering pieces of furniture to the door opening into his bedroom. A breathless moment ensued, during which she heard his key turn in the lock, followed by the repeating sound of his footsteps as he wended his way inside to a point she could only guess at from her knowledge of the room to be a dresser in one of the corners. Here he lingered so long that, without any conscious volition of her own, Almost in spite of her volition, which would have kept her where she was, she found herself on her feet, then moving step by step, more cautiously than he, in and out of huddling chairs and cluttering tables, till she came to a standstill before the reflection, in some mirror, no doubt, of the judge's tall form, bending not over the dresser, as she had supposed, but before a cupboard in the wall, a cupboard she had never seen, in a wall she had never seen, but now recognized for the one hitherto concealed by the great carpet rug, he had a roll of paper in his hand, which he bundled together as he dropped the curtain back into place and stopped to smooth it out over the floor with the precision of long habit. All this she saw in the mirror, as though she had been at his back in the other room, but when she beheld him turn, then panic seized her, and she started breathlessly for the spot where he had left her, glad that there was so little light, and praying that he might be deaf to her steps, which gently as they fell sounded portentously loud in her own ears. She had reached her chair, but she had not had time to reseat herself when she beheld him approaching with the bundle of loose sheets clutched in his hand. "'I want you to sit here and read,' said he, laying the manuscript down on a small table near the wall under a gas-jet, which he immediately lighted. 
I am going back to my own desk. If you want to speak, you may. I shall not be working. And she heard his footsteps retreating again, in and out among the furniture, till he reached his own chair and sat before his own table. This ended all sound in the room, excepting the beating of her own heart, which had become tumultuous. How could she sit there and read words, with the blood pounding in her veins and her eyes half-blind with terror and excitement? It was only the necessity of the case which made it possible. She knew that she would never be released from that spot until she had read whatever had been placed before her. Thank God the manuscript was legible. Oliver's handwriting possessed the clearness of print. She had begun to read before she knew it, and having begun, she never paused till she reached the end. I was fifteen, it was my birthday, and I had my own ideas of how I wanted to spend it. My hobby was modeling. My father had no sympathy with this hobby. To him, it was a waste of time, better spent in study, or such sports that would fit me for study but he had never absolutely forbidden me to exercise my talent this way, and when on the day I mentioned I had a few hours of freedom, I decided to begin the piece of work of which I had long dreamed. This was the remodeling in clay of an exquisite statue which had greatly aroused my admiration. This statue stood in a forbidden place. It was one of the art treasures of the great house on the bluff, commonly called Spencer's Folly. I had seen this marble once, when dining there with father, and was so impressed by its beauty that it haunted me night and day, standing out white and wonderful in my imagination, against backgrounds of endless variation, to copy its lovely lines, to caress with the creative hand those curves of beauty instinct, as I then felt with soul, became my one overmastering desire, a desire which soon deepened into purpose the boy of fifteen would attempt the impossible. I procured my clay, and then awaited my opportunity. It came, as I said, on my birthday. There was no one living in the house at this time. Mr. Spencer had gone west for the winter. The servants had been dismissed, and the place was closed. Only that morning, I had heard one of his boon companions say, Oh, Jack's done for. He's found a pretty widow in the Sierras, and there's no knowing now when he will drink his health again in Spencer's Folly. A statement which wakened but one picture in my mind, and that was a long stretch of empty rooms teeming with art treasures, amid which one gem rose supreme, the gem which through his reckless carelessness I now proposed to make my own, if loving fingers and the response of clay would allow it. What to every other person in town would have seemed an insuperable obstacle to this undertaking was no obstacle to me. I knew how to get in. One day, in my restless wanderings about a place which had something of the nature of a shrine to me, I had noticed that one of the windows, a swinging one, overlooking the ravine, moved as the wind took it. Either the lock had given way or it had not been properly fastened. If I could only bring myself to disregard the narrowness of the ledge separating the house from the precipice beneath, I felt that I could reach this window and sever the vine sufficiently for my body to press in. And this I did that night, finding, just as I had expected, that once a little force was brought to bear upon the sash, it yielded easily, offering a free passage to the delights within. In all this I experienced a little fear, but once inside, 
I began to realize the hazard of my adventure, as hanging at full length from the casement, I meditated on the drop I must take into what to my dazed eyes looked like an absolute void. This taxed my courage, but after a moment of sheer fright, I let myself go. I had to, and immediately found myself standing upright in a space so narrow I could touch the walls on either side. It was a closet I had entered, opening, as I soon discovered, into the huge dining hall where I had once sat beside my father at the one formal meal of my life. I remembered that room. It had made a great impression upon me, and some light finding its way through the panes of uncurtained glass which topped each of the three windows overlooking the ravine, I soon was able to find the door leading into the drawing room. I had brought a small lantern in the bag slung to my shoulders, but I had not hitherto dared to use it on account of the transparency of the panes I have mentioned. But once in the perfectly dark recesses of the room beyond, I drew it out, and without the least fear of detection, boldly turned it on upon the small alcove where stood the object of my adoration. It was another instance of the reckless confidence of youth. I was on the verge of one of the most appalling adventures which could befall a man, and yet no premonition disturbed the ecstasy with which I knelt before the glimmering marble and unrolled my bundle of wet clay. I was not a complete fool. I only meant to attempt a miniature copy, but my presumption led me to expect it to be like. Yes, like, oh, I never doubted it. But when, after a few minutes of rapturous contemplation of the proportions, which had been the despair of all lesser adepts than the great sculptor who conceived them, I began my work. Oh, then I began to realize a little the nature of the task I had undertaken, and to ask myself whether if I stayed all night I could finish it to my mind. It was during one of these moments of hesitation that I heard the first growl of distant thunder, but it made little impression upon me, and I returned to my work with renewed glow, renewed hope. I felt so secure in my shell of darkness with only the one small beam lighting up my model and my own fingers busy with the yielding clay. But the thunder growled again, and my head rose, this time in real alarm, not because of that far-off struggle of the elements, with which I had nothing to do and hardly sensed, but because of a nearer sound, an indistinguishable yet strangely perturbing sound, suggesting a step. No, it was a voice, or if not a voice, some equally sure token of an approaching presence on the porch in the front. Someone going by on the road two hundred feet away must have caught the gleam of my lantern through some unperceived crack in the parlor shutters. In another minute I should hear a shout at the window or perhaps the pounding of a heavy hand on the front door. I hated the interruption but otherwise I was but little disturbed. Whoever it was, he could not by any chance find his way in. Nevertheless, I discreetly closed the shutter of my lantern and began groping my way back to my own place of exit. I had reached the dining room door when the blood suddenly stopped in my veins. Another sound had reached my ear, an unmistakable one this time, the rattling of a key in its lock. A man... Two men were entering by the great front door. They came in on a swoop of wind, which seemed to carry everything before it. I heard a loud laugh, 
coarsened by drink and the tipsy exclamation of a voice I knew. There, shut the door, can't you, before it's blown from the hinges. You'll find everything jolly here, wine, lights, solitude, in which to finish our game and a roaring good opportunity to sleep afterwards. No servants, no porters, not a soul to disturb us. This is my house and it's a corker. I might be away for a year and here there was a crackling of a match. I've only to use my night key to find everything a man wants right to my hand. The answer I failed to catch. I was simply paralyzed by terror. Should their way lay through the drawing room, my clay, my tools were all lying there, and my unfinished model. Mr. Spencer was not an unkind man, but he was very drunk, and I had heard that whiskey makes a brute of the most good-natured. He would trample on my work. Perhaps he would destroy my tools, and then hunt the house till he found me. I did not know what to expect. Meantime, lights began to flame up. The room where I stood was no longer a safe refuge, and creeping like a cat, I began to move towards the closet door. Suddenly, I made a dart for it. The two men, trampling heavily on the marble floor of the hall, were coming my way. I could hear their rude talk, rude to me, though one of them called himself a gentleman. As the door of the room opened to admit them, I succeeded in shutting that of the closet into which I had flung myself, or almost so. I did not dare to latch it, for they were already in the room and might hear me. This is the spot for us, came in Spencer's most jovial tones. Big table, whiskey hand, cards right here in my pocket. Wait till I strike a light. But the lightning anticipated him. As he spoke, the walls which surrounded me, the walls which surrounded them, leapt into glaring view, and I heard the second voice cry out, I don't like that. Let's wait till the storm is over. I can't play with such candles as those flaring about us. Damn it! You won't know what candles you are playing by when once you see the pile I've got ready for you. I'm in for a big bout. You have ten dollars, and I have a thousand. I'll play you for that ten if, in the meantime, you get my thousand. Why, it'll be because you're the better man. I don't like it, I say. There, see? A flood of white light had engulfed the house. My closet, with its whitewashed walls, flared about me like the mouth of a furnace. See yourself, came the careless retort, and with the words, a gas jet shot up, then two, then all that the room contained. How's that? What's a flash, more or less now? I heard no answer. Only the slap of the cards as they were flung onto the table and the clatter of a key as it was turned in some distant lock, and the quick question, Rum or whiskey? Irish or scotch? Whiskey and Irish. Good, but you'll drink it alone. The bottles were brought forward, and they sat down one on each side of the dusty mahogany table. The man facing me was Spencer. The other sat with his back my way. But I could now and then catch a glimpse of his profile as he started at some flash or lifted his head in terror of the thunderclaps. "'We'll play till the hands point to three, announced Spencer, taking out his watch and laying it down where both could see it. "'Do you agree to that?' "'Unless I win, and you're fun to go a-begging before the hour.' "'I agree.' The tone was harsh. It was almost smothered. The man was staring at the watch. There was a strange set look to his figure, a pausing as of thought, of sinister thought, I should say now, 
Then I never stopped to characterize it. It was followed too quickly by a loud laugh and a sudden grab at the cards. You'll win, I feel it in my bones, came in encouraging tones from the rich man. If you do, here the storm lulled, and his voice sank to an encouraging whisper. You can buy the old tavern up the road. It's going for a song. And then we'll be neighbors and can play, play, thunder, a terrific peal. It shook the house. It shook my boyish heart. But it no longer had power to move the two gamesters. The fever of play had reached its height, and I heard nothing more from their lips but such phrases as belonged to the game. Why didn't I take advantage of their absorption to fly? The sill above my head was within easy reach. The sash was open, and no sound that I could make would reach them in this hurly-burly of storm. Why, then, with all this invitation to escape, did I remain crouched in my dark retreat, with eyes fixed on the narrow crack before me which, under some impulse of movement in the walls about, had widened sufficiently for me to see all that I have related? I do not know unless I was hypnotized by the glare of expression on those men's faces. I remember that it was my first glimpse of the human countenance under the sway of wicked and absorbing passions. Hitherto my dreams had all been of beauty, of lovely shapes or noble figures cast in heroic mold. Henceforth these ideal groups must visit my imagination mixed with the bulging eyes of greed and the contortions of hate masking their hideousness under false smiles, or hiding them behind the motions of riotous jollity. I was horrified, I was sickened, and I was frightened to the very soul. But the fascination of the spectacle held me. I watched the men, and I watched the play, and soon I forgot the tempest also, or remembered it only when my small retreat flared into sudden whiteness, or some gust, heavier than the rest, toppled the brick from the chimneys above us, and sent them crashing down upon the rain-soaked roof. The stranger was winning. I saw the heap of bills beside him grow and grow, while that of his opponent dwindled. I saw the latter smile, smile softly at each toss of his losings across the board. But there was no mirth in his smile, nor was there any common satisfaction in the way the other's hand closed over his gains. He will have it all, I thought. The Claymore Tavern will soon change owners. And I was holding my breath over the final stake when suddenly the house gave a lurch, resettled, then lurched again. The tempest had become a hurricane, and with its first swoop, a change took place in the stranger's luck. The bills, which had all gone one way, began slowly to recross the board, first singly, then in handfuls. They fell within Spencer's grasp and the smile with which he hailed their return was not the smile with which he had seen them go, but a steady grin such as I had beheld on the faces of sculptured demons. It frightened me, this smile. I could see nothing else, but when at another crashing peal I ducked my head, I found on lifting it that my eyes sought instinctively the rigid back of the stranger instead of the open face of Spencer. The passion of the winner was nothing to that of the loser. From this moment on I saw but the one figure, and thrilled to the one hope that an opportunity would soon come for me to see the face of the man whose back told such a tale of fury and suspense. 
but it remained fixed on Spencer and the cards. The roof might fall, he was past heeding. A bill or two only lay now at his elbow, and I could perceive the further stiffening of his already rigid muscles as he dealt out the cards. Suddenly, hard upon a rattling peal which seemed to unite heaven and earth, I heard shouted out, Half past two. The game stops at three. Damn your greedy eyes, came back in a growl, then all was still, fearfully still, both in the atmosphere outside and in that within, during which I caught sight of the stranger's hand moving slowly around to its back and returning as slowly forward, all under cover of the tabletop and a stack of half-empty bottles. I was inexperienced. I knew nothing of the habits or the ways of such men as these. But the alarm of innocence in the face of untold, unsuspected, but intuitively felt evil, seized me at the stealthy movement, and I tried to rise, tried to shriek, but could not, for events rushed upon us quicker than I could speak or move. I can buy the Claymore Tavern, can I? Well, I'm going to. I rang out into the air as the speaker leaped to his feet. Take that, you cheat, and that, and that and the shots rang out. One, two, three. Spencer was dead in his folly. I had seen him rise, throw up his hands, and then fall in a heap among the cards and glasses. Silence. Not even heaven spoke. Then the man who stood there alone turned slightly, and I saw his face. I have seen it many times since. I have seen it at Claymore Tavern, Distorted up to this moment by a thousand emotions, all evil ones, he was calm now with the realization of his act, and I can make no mistake as to his identity. Later, I will mention his name. Glancing first at his victim, then at the pistol still smoking in his hand, he put the weapon back in his pocket and began gathering up the money for which he had just damned his soul. To get it all, he had to move an arm of the body sprawling along the board but he did not appear to mind. When every bill was in his pockets, he reached out for his hand and for the watch. Then I saw him smile. He smiled as he shut the case. He smiled as he plunged it in after the bills. There was gloating in this smile. He seemed to have got what he wanted more than when he fingered the bills. I was stiff with horror. I was not conscious of noting these details, but I saw them, every one. Small things make an impression when the mind is numb under the effect of a great blow. Next moment, I woke to a realization of myself and all the danger of my own position. He was scanning very carefully the room about him. His eyes were traveling slowly, very slowly, but certainly in my direction. I saw them pause, concentrate their glances, and fix them straight and full upon mine. Not that he saw me. The crack through which we were peering each in our several ways was too narrow for that. But the crack itself, that was what he saw, and the promise it gave of some room beyond. I was a creature frozen, but when he suddenly turned away, instead of plunging towards me with a still-smoking pistol, I had the instinct to make a leap for the window over my head and clutch madly at his narrow sill in a wild attempt at escape but the effort ended precipitately. Terror had got me by the hair, and terror made me look back. The crack had widened still further, 
and what I now saw through it glued me to the wall and held me there transfixed, with dangling feet and starting eyeballs. He was coming towards me, a straining, panting figure, half carrying, half dragging the dead man who flopped aside from his arms. God, what was I to do now? How meet those cold, indifferent eyes filled only with thoughts of his own safety, and see them flare again with murderous impulse, and that impulse directed towards myself. I couldn't meet them, I couldn't stay, but how fly would not a muscle responded? I had to stay, hanging from the sill and praying, praying till my senses blurred, and I knew nothing till on a sudden they cleared again, and I woke to the blessed realization that the door had been pushed against my slender figure, hiding it completely from his sight, and that this door was now closed again, and this time tightly, and I was safe, safe. The relief set the perspiration in a reek from every pore, but the icy revulsion came quickly as I drew up my knees to get a better purchase on the sill. Heaven's torch was suddenly lit up, and the closet became a pit of dazzling whiteness amid which I saw that blot of that dead body with head propped against the wall and eyes. Remember, I was but fifteen. The legs were hunched up and almost touched mine. I could feel them, though there was no contact, pushing me, forcing me from my frail support. Would it lighten again? Would I have to see? No, any risk first. The window. I no longer thought of it. It was too remote, too difficult. The door. The door. There was my way. The only way which would rid me instantly of any proximity to this hideous object. I flung myself at it found the knob, turned it, and yelled aloud. My foot had brushed against him. I knew the difference, and it set me palpitating over the threshold, but no further. Love of life had returned with my escape from that awful prison house, and I halted in the semi-darkness into which I had plunged, thanking heaven for the thunder peal which had drowned my loud cry. For I was not yet safe. He was still there. He had turned out all the lights but one, but this was sufficient to show me his tall figure straining up to put out this last jet. Another instant, and darkness enveloped the whole place. He had not seen me and was going. I could hear the sound of his feet as he went stumbling in his zigzag course towards the door. Then every sound, both on his part and mine, was lost in a swoop of downfalling rain and I remember nothing more, till out of the blankness before me, he started again into view, within the open doorway, where in the glare of what he called heaven's candles he stood, poising himself to meet the gale, which seemed ready to catch him up, and whirl him with other inconsequent things into the void of nothingness. Then darkness settled again, and I was left alone with murder, all the innocence of my youth gone, and my soul a very charnel house. I had to re-enter that closet. I had to take the only means of escape proffered. But I went through it as we go through the horrors of nightmare. My muscles obeyed my volition, but my sensibilities were no longer active. How I managed to draw myself up to that slippery sill, all reeking now with rain, or save myself from falling to my death in the whirling blast that carried everything about me into the ravine below, I do not know. I simply did it and escaped all, lightning flash and falling limb, 
and the lasso of swirling winds to find myself at last lying my full length along the bridge amid a shock of elements such as nature seldom sports with. Here I clung, for I was breathless, waiting with head buried in my arm for the rain to abate before I attempted a further escape from the place which held such horror for me. But no abatement came, and feeling the bridge shaken under me almost to cracking, I began to crawl, inch by inch, along its gaping boards till I reached its middle. There God stopped me, for with a clangor as of rending worlds, a bolt, hot from the zenith, sped down upon the bluff behind me, throwing me down again upon my face, and engulfing sense and understanding for one wild moment. Then I sprang upright, and with a yell of terror, sped across the rocking boards beneath me to the road, no longer battling with my desire to look back, no longer asking myself when and how that dead man would be found, no longer even asking my own duty in the case, for Spencer's folly was on fire, and the crime I had just seen perpetrated there would soon be a crime stricken from the sight of men forever. In the flare of his tremendous burning, I found my way up through the forest road to my home and into my father's presence. He, like everybody else, was up that night and already alarmed at my continued absence. "'Spencer's folly is on fire!' I cried, as he cast dismayed eyes at my pallid and dripping figure. "'If you go to the door, you can see it!' But I told him nothing more. Perhaps other boys of my age can understand my silence. I not only did not tell my father, but I told nobody. Even after the discovery of Spencer's charred body in the closet, so miraculously preserved, with every day that passed, it became harder to part with his baleful secret. I felt it corroding my thoughts and destroying my spirits, and yet I kept still. Only my taste for modeling was gone. I have never touched clay since. Claymore Tavern did change owners. When I heard that a man by the name of Scoville had bought it, I went over to see Scoville. He was the man. Then I began to ask myself what I ought to do with my knowledge, and the more I asked myself this question, and the more I brooded over the matter, the less did I feel like taking, not the public, but my father, into my confidence. I had never doubted his love for me, but I had always stood in great awe of his reproof, and I did not know where I was to find courage to tell him all the details of this adventure. There is one thing I did do, however. I made certain inquiries here and there, and soon satisfied myself as to how Scoville had been able to come into town, commit this horrid deed and escape, without anyone but myself being the wiser. Spencer and he had come from the West en route to New York without any intention of stopping off in Shelby. But once involved in play, they got so interested that when within a few miles of the town, Spencer proposed that they should leave the train and finish the game in his own house. Whether circumstances aided them, or Spencer took some extraordinary precautions against being recognized, will never be known. But certain it is that he escaped all observation at the station and even upon the road. When Scoville returned alone, the storm had reached such a height that the roads were deserted, and he, being an entire stranger here at that time, naturally attracted no attention, and so was able to slip away on the next train with just the drawback of buying a new ticket. 
I, a boy of fifteen, trespassing where I did not belong, was the only living witness of what had happened on this night of dreadful storm in the house which was now a ruin. I realized the unpleasantness of the position in which this put me, but not its responsibility. Scoville, ignorant that any other breast than his own held the secret of that hour of fierce temptation and murder, naturally scented no danger, and rejoiced without stint in his new acquisition. What evil might I not draw down upon myself by disturbing him in it at this late day? If I were going to do anything, I should have done it at first, so I reasoned, and let the matter slide. I became interested in school and study, and the years passed, and I had almost forgotten the occurrence, when suddenly the full remembrance came back upon me with a rush. A man, my father's friend, was found murdered in sight of the spot of old-time horror, and Scoville was accused of the act. I was older now, and saw my fault in all its enormity. I was guilty of that crime, or so I felt in the first heat of my sorrow and despair. I may even have said so, in dreams or in some of my self-absorbed broodings, though I certainly had not lifted the stick against Mr. Etheridge. I had left the hand free which did, and this was a sufficient occasion for remorse, or so I truly felt. I was so affected by the thought that even my father, with his own weight of troubles, noticed my careworn face and asked me for an explanation. But I held him off until the verdict was reached, and then I told him. I had not liked his looks for some time. They seemed to convey some doubt of the justice of this man's sentence, and I felt that if he had such doubts, they might be erased by the certainty of Scoville's murderous tendencies and unquestionable greed. And they were. But as Scoville was already doomed, we decided that it was unnecessary to make public his past offenses. However, with an eye upon future contingencies, my father exacted from me in writing this full account of my adventure, which with all the solemnity of an oath I here declared to be the true story of what befell me in the house called Spencer's Folly, on the night of awful storm, September 11, 1895. Oliver Ostrander. Witnesses to above signature? Archibald Ostrander. Bella Jefferson. Shelby. November 7, 1898. End of chapter 24. One secret less. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.